Good morning, everyone. Let me make the sound room nervous here. All right. I'm just going to jump right in with Huffies this morning, assuming that's all right with everyone. To anything that moved, yesterday, yesterday it was sweet madness, reciting poems for hours and talking about love and to anything that moved. I laid down late, thinking I might be able to sleep all the way until there was light of resplendent sounds and polished jokes from the morning birds. That was foolish of me. For in just a few minutes, three worlds crawled from a cave in my heart and built a huge fire and yelled, Get up! They could not contain their happiness, living inside of one as ripe as me. We began jumping up and down and banging our heads like a drunk bronze clapper in a sacred Buddhist bell. Against the fields and the mountains, against all the jeweled walls of this universe, yesterday was such exquisite madness, singing about the friend for hours and talking about love to anything that dared to move. Yet, I believe, another wonderful day and perhaps even a sweeter height of rare, inspired insanity, O Hafiz, is about to begin. <laughs> you know, it was this book, this actual, this is the very book right here uh, that I found in Aardvark Books in San Francisco, and it was a poem just like that one that uh, somehow, thankfully, magically, opened up an adventure of spiritual life uh, for me. And it's with that kind of hope, that kind of promise, that kind of uh, carrot, as you will, that God has put in front of us uh, that we go running after, that we try and, and find, try and touch for just a moment in this life. Last week we were talking, I think, in one of, in Viveka Chujamani class, or one of the classes, about why bad things happen to good people, or why good things happen to bad people, however you want to look at it. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was an interesting idea, because it's an age-old question, and uh, none of the answers are really satisfying. But uh, I kind of started running through my own mind, and then through some of the scriptures, and then through some of the words of different teachers, to try and get some different ideas on this, on this question. And I found something very interesting, and I'm going to share it with you this morning because I'm going to head you off at the pass. None of these answers are going to make anybody happy. None of the answers are going to be like, aha, that's the one. That's absolutely right. Life solved. I get it. But what does happen is you will find your mind arguing with the things that you don't like about these answers. And while I was thinking about these things and kind of ruminating them, I found that to be the helpful part. Not so much the answers that are going to be presented to the question this morning, but the lecture this morning is going to happen in your own head. I want you to pay attention with the arguments that your mind puts forward for why it's not happy with these arguments. Because I think the lessons that you'll learn from that are far more valuable than the actual propositions themselves. And let that start a conversation in your mind with yourself, of course, and with Takuara Ma, whoever your ideal is, there with you to kind of hold the pole star in place for you to get to your own answers and your own understandings of these things. Because it's one way to get through life with no answers and just keep putting off things like, yeah, 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 that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, and then in the end, we're, we're, we're nowhere. So it's good to wrestle with these things and to try and find out what is this life about, you know, Hafiz has that poem, he says, don't, don't get rid of your loneliness so quickly. Let it ferment like a fine tea to become a constant reminder of your need for the divine, for the beloved. And uh, these questions are like that, all of these unanswerable questions. Where did the world begin? What am I? What am I? What is this experience? What is this play? What is God? What is religion? <laughs> What's the point of any of it? These are all good things in the sense that we may not be, have a mind that can conceive of an answer, but it might just encourage us enough to step beyond mind and to find an answer. 
So I'm going to present to you, let's see how many there are here, one, two, three, four different answers to this question of why bad things happen to good people. <laughs> the first one we're going to jump into is, uh, is perhaps the highest answer, pure Advaita, and that is that nothing is happening. There is no change, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Maharaj, uh, uh, Sri Nishigadatta makes a statement. He says, before anything can come into being, there must be somebody to whom it comes. All appearances and disappearances pre-propose a change against some changeless background. So we hear from Thakur that, that only the real is, uh, only the unchanging is real. <laughs> that that which does not change. And we've talked about that in the past, that you kind of have to go in and find the watcher within you, that observer, in order to touch what doesn't change, that thing which does not change. <clears throat> we've also talked in the past about this notion of, of uh, you know, God as being the present, God being the I am, that he is this eternal moment. And that this eternal moment, you've never experienced the end of it, you've never experienced the begin of it, beginning of it, but it has always been here. It's always been the only place that anything is. And oddly enough, in that slice of the present, nothing moves. Nothing moves, because in the present, there's no passage of time. There is always isness. Now, that's something that, that you'll have to sit and think about for a while because it doesn't seem to make any sense. When I was down in North Carolina, I pushed a book on the floor, and uh, only after I did that did I realize that might dis disturb somebody. But <laughs> I pushed one of the books on the floor, and we watched it fall, and I said, now how can we say that there is no change in the moment when all of us just sat there and watched this book fall? Right? How can we possibly say that? Well, Sri Nishigadatta is sitting with somebody who's wondering the exact same things that we are. And he says, permanency is a mere idea born of the action of time. Time, again, depends of memory. By permanency, you mean unfailing memory through endless time. You want to eternalize the mind, which is not possible. The questioner, then what is eternal? Maharaj, that which does not change with time. You cannot eternalize a transient thing. Only the changeless is eternal. Questioner. I'm familiar with the, great, with the general sense of what you're saying. I do not crave for more knowledge. All I want, really, is peace. Maharaj, you can, you, you can have for the asking all the peace you want. The questioner. Well, I'm asking. <laughs> Maharaj. You must ask with an undivided heart and live an integrated life. How? Detach yourself from all that makes your mind restless. Renounce all that disturbs its peace. If you want peace, deserve it. Questioner. Well, surely everybody deserves peace. Maharaj. Those only deserve it who do not disturb it. In what way do I disturb peace, Maharaj? By being a slave to your desires and your fears. Even when they're justified, Maharaj, emotional reactions born of ignorance or inadvertence are never justified. Seek a clear mind and a clean heart. All you need is to keep quietly alert, inquiring into the real nature of yourself. This is the only way the only way to peace. So we see what he's talking about here, that it's mind that gives us that sense of time. You remember, this should bring up at least half the, <laughs> half the talks I've said, because I always make the same points that I love, is this notion that it's the mind that takes this ever-present moment, this eternal moment that has no beginning, has no end, which we know, right? You've, this moment has never, doesn't have an end. We're always in it. And somehow we've broken it up into three parts. We've put the past there, we've put the future there, and the present is there. And so many practices among the Buddhists and other groups is to, is to come into this moment, see this moment as it is, that it's eternal, 
that it has no end, that it's unchanging, that it's pure, that it's blissful, that it's absolute, that it is the thing that measures, you know, it is the stillness that measures change, as it were. It's the backdrop of that unchanging. So what is it that happens? As we've talked before, it's your mind grabbing onto something that's in the present and putting it in its memories, attaching to it, wanting more of it, or wanting to hold on to that experience. Oh, this is pleasant. I like it. I grab onto it. When you grab onto it, your attachments what? They become your memory. They become the formation of past. So your attachments to things in the present that you've put into your basket to keep for later, those become your idea of past. And when you have those those ideas of past, they what? They become that lens, right? This is all old hat for most of us. They become that lens through which you look at the present. When you have this attachment and you put it in front of your eyes and you look at the present, you can no longer see the present as God. You can never see it as unchanging. You can never see it as perfect, as complete. Putting this lens of attachments and looking at the present creates desire because you remember the pizza. You know, in the present, you may smell it, you may smell it, and then comes up the attachment lens, and you're looking around for pizza. There's no pizza in the present. I can smell it, but there's no pizza. And so desire arises. From desire comes your idea of future, because now you have to come up with a method of bringing pizza into your present, into the, this, this moment. And so most of us are spending most of our days bouncing back and forth between our attachments and our desires, and spending very little time in the present. Because Maharaj is saying here, he's saying in this present is all the peace that you could ask for. In this present is full of joy. It's full of contentment. It's full of mystery. It's full of wonder. It's full of beauty. It's all of those things. Shut the mind down for a moment. Let go of all of the things that are keeping you restless and keeping you moving and keeping you looking and keeping you searching. Let go for just a moment and be in this present, this perfect place. Understand that this moment somehow is not changing. It's like a st- if, you take, if you were to take a movie. A, there's so many great examples that come out of a movie. But take, imagine taking a whole reel of a movie and cutting all the frames into individual frames and then stacking them together into one little stack of time there. There you've got the present moment in that stack. Everything, the entire past is accounted for in this present moment. All of its supposed events or imagined occurrences have created this present moment for us. And out of this present moment will come all of the possible futures based on perhaps decisions that you're making, perhaps things that you're thinking, whatnot. Wherever your ride is going, you're on your way to the future. But in this, in this moment, in this stack of film, everything is contained there. Nothing is moving. Nothing moves. What happens is you put a drop of mind on top, and that mind burns its way through and creates movement. You know, just like when you, if you were to take that reel and instead of putting it in that stack and calling it the moment, stretch it out in a long run and run it through mind and project it on that, that eternal changeless surface. And what happens? A story unfolds. And we've talked about the wonderful nature of a movie is the fact that that movie actually gives you nothing. That's the fun part about a movie. It gives you nothing. Everything in that movie you bring to it. If you didn't have all of the experiences that that movie is, is playing for you or reminding you of, you wouldn't get the movie at all. You wouldn't understand it. If you didn't know that those were people, if you didn't know that that was a man and that that was a woman, and if you didn't know what a relationship was, and if you had never kissed your partner, or if you've never held hands on the beach, if you had never you know, gotten fired from your job or had a, you know, whatever it is, lost a loved one, you would bring nothing to that movie, and the movie would fall flat. You wouldn't understand any of it. So the movie isn't, isn't actually giving anything to you. You are giving everything to the movie. You are filling in all of the, the story because actually nothing is changing, right? In the moment, a still picture is being flashed before you, and then the next moment, another still picture is being flashed before you, and then another still picture is being flashed before you. Your mind is bringing the movement your mind has a section in it 
That's, that's called the narrator. That creates story where there is no story. That movie is a collection of still pictures. There's no story there. Your mind will fill in the blanks and create the story. Sri Nishagadatta, many of the sages say the same thing about this life, that it's the exact same thing here. There is no past and there is no future. There's only the eternal moment. But you'll live in your attachments and your desires bouncing back and forth, and you will create meaning and create a story from things that are not related. He goes on to say in a fun way that there's no such thing as cause and effect, that what we call cause and effect is merely repetition. You know, in the, I remember in my physics class that when they were, the teacher was trying to teach me that everything was a matter of probability, that you could never guarantee an outcome to any experiment, that you could only guarantee a probability, a range of potentials that would happen. And I was telling him, so you're telling me that I could drop this ball into this pot right here, but there's going to be a time when that ball doesn't actually land in that pot? And he says, well, the probability is low, but yes, <laughs> there is a probability that that ball will not fall in that bowl on one of the drops that you make. But your mind works in absolutes. Your mind says, that is always going to land in that bowl. You know, it's going to go 100 times. And it'll make up reasons. It'll ignore the times that it doesn't land in that bowl. I like to think about that in terms of our lives. We're always thinking that we're making our plans. I've mentioned this to some, some friends here before. Like you look at your life and you think, okay, you'll plan something on Friday night. I'm going to go with these four people and we're going to go watch Wonder Woman. By the time Friday comes around, you actually go with three different friends and you end up eating at Caro's and then going to listen to a concert and then coming home you know, in the evening. That's what actually happened. But you will still talk about that Friday night as if you planned it even though your plan was to go see Wonder Woman with these four people. That plan has completely rearranged it. You look at your life right now. Is this where you thought your life would be? I don't think there's many people that actually end up in the life that they, are, that they planned, that they thought was coming for them. And yet we accept it. We still see ourselves as the doer. We still see ourselves as, as the person running the show, even though there is no support for it. There's no, there is no validation for that. I mean, there's a subset of validation, right? There's a few things that we did that we got planned, you know, like, well, we married somebody or not married somebody, and, well, we got a car and a house of some sort and a job of some sort, so in a very loose way. But you see how your mind is creating a story that keeps you in charge, that keeps you at the center, that keeps answering all of your questions and keeps formulating this narration of your life. That isn't happening. That isn't going on that there's only been this now, this moment here, and the only thing that's been here is God, that divinity, everywhere present and always perfect. But you're not looking at that. You're looking at your attachments and forming your desires, going back and forward and back and forward, and occasionally you'll accidentally get into the moment, but very rarely. That's that whole idea of the tea ceremony. Has anybody ever seen a tea ceremony done? It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. At the, at the uh, Asian Art Museum in San Francisco, they have a tea house, a Japanese tea house built there, and they have a Buddhist monk that comes in and does a tea ceremony. And he does it for some actual people sitting there. And everybody else is kind of outside the window looking in and watching it. But to watch somebody who has made a practice and a study of serving tea with absolute presence and absolute awareness is such a beautiful experience. There's such profundity to it. You can't believe how profound pouring tea can become and the meaning of it. Well, you know, and the person, it's like, the funny thing about it is the contrast. Immediately when the person picks up their glass of tea to drink it, you can see the profound difference between somebody who's living in that moment, who's aware of this divinity, aware of this, this profundity, to just aware of the perfection of the moment, and then somebody who's just drawing a line of story through the middle of it. You know, they just grab their key, the shakiness to it, they sip the tea. There's no way that you can look graceful <laughs> drinking that tea after having been served it by somebody who's really present there for you. So this idea that this world is unchanging, that you've created all the change, you've created all the events, that there is nothing that happens in this world. This world is just isness. It's the presence of God always and eternally and will always simply be the presence of God. Whatever story your mind is creating is your own business.
And so in that, of course, good things are going to happen to bad people and bad things are going to happen to good people. But that's your fault. You're the one decided that that person was bad and you were the one that decided that that event was good. You're the one that saw that event as bad and that person is good. It's your own self that's making up that story. How can you wonder why God is doing anything? God is just being. You're creating the story. You're creating the problem. And you're creating the question. Ultimately, there is no question. Awareness is primordial, Nishagadatta says. It is the original state, beginningless, endless, uncaused, unsupported, without parts, without change. Consciousness is on contact, a reflection against a surface, a state of duality. There can be no consciousness without awareness, but there can be awareness without consciousness, as in deep sleep. Awareness is absolute. Consciousness is relative to its content. Consciousness is always of something. Consciousness is partial and changeful. Awareness is total, changeless, calm, and silent. And it is the common matrix of every experience. Questioner, how does one go beyond consciousness into awareness? Maharaj, since it is awareness that makes consciousness possible, there is awareness in every state of consciousness. Therefore, the very consciousness of being conscious is already a movement in awareness. Interest in your stream of consciousness takes you to awareness. It is not a new state. It is at once recognized as the original basic existence, which is life itself, which is love, which is joy. That's Satchitananda. That's where the contentment of the moment is. This awareness, this being. It's a wonderful practice when you sit in the moment and just sit there and just simply open up everything to the experience of this moment. You know, I do it those times when I get in those moods of depression or, you know, some wave comes over me of, of discontent or severe unhappiness. One of the best ways to deal with that is just to sit there and just breathe for a minute and listen to it. Feel your heart pump. Think of this experience of life, the mystery of it all. Wonder about everything that enters into your mind. And there is such a calm sweetness there such a beautiful excitement of the potentials of being, the amazement of, of the fact that, you, that, that we know so little and can experience so much, to sit in that moment. So that's our first possibility. The second one is that it's just a matter of attitude. All things work together for good. Don't end the story too soon. So if you take as it were, any story of life. And if you move the boundaries to here, then it looks like good is happening to this person and bad is happening to that person. Remember we talked about Job a few weeks ago, the guy in the Old Testament that God basically took everything from him and then some and just drove him into the dust. And so if you end the story with him having nothing, you're like, well, how did, how did that happen? Look at that horrible thing that happened to Job. You know, he's got nothing. He's been beaten up, and the Lord has completely abandoned him, and he's a righteous man. He's done everything he was supposed to do. He's lived a beautiful life. But you have to go to the end of the story, when Job gets everything back twofold, and God rewards him and restores all of his wealth, restores his family, restores his marriage, restores his everything, and then doubles it to give it back to him. So you take the boundaries of the story to include that, and you're like, uh-huh, well, that's a different thing. So it's a matter of slicing up the story and approaching it with a, with a different kind of attitude. In the, in the Bible, in, in the book of Romans, which is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he says, And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So it's a promise that God's making in those scriptures, that everything that happens to you is happening to you for your good. That goes very much hand in hand with, with Vivekananda's principle that love is the only motivating influence in the world. It's the only power of attraction. It's the only thing that makes anything happen. 
That's a matter of perspective. So that you take a look at your life, you take what you think is a bad experience. You know, like I used to have this Volvo. <laughs> Probably nobody but me could imagine being proud of driving a Volvo. But when I, when I, was, when I was in college, you know, my parents uh, sold me the family car for like $1,000. So, and it was a really nice, fancy Volvo. And I can remember the feelings of, hmm, I'm driving a Volvo, you know, and my friends are all there. Plymouths and <laughs> whatnot. And I had that feeling, you know, I thought, I thought, and at the time I was a Christian and I, it kind of troubled me that I had that kind of feeling about the car, that it really was an ego buzz for me to be driving it. And I sort of always knew that God was going to take it away at some point. <laughs> and sure enough, I was home for Christmas break. And this, this is sort of a mystical experience, although I say it more for fun than anything. I was home for Christmas, and I had loaned my car to a friend while I was out of town. And I was in the kitchen helping my mother make cookies, and the phone rang. And I knew. I knew without her evening answering the phone, I fully understood. I knew the Volvo was gone. I knew it. And sure enough, when she picked up the phone, my friend was on the other end. We were driving along, there was no stop sign at any corner, and I just went through the intersection, and just this person plowed into the side of the car, and uh, I'm, I'm afraid it's totaled. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I should ask if anybody's hurt, but <laughs> I know the Volvo's gone. So this idea, like, so I could look at that and be like, why, God, why are you taking my car away? Why did you do this to me? Why did you blah, blah, blah? You know, it can be a very negative thing. But you can take that spin. All things work together for good to those that love God. God is doing everything in my life for my benefit, to bring me forward, to take me higher, to take me to a deeper understanding. And then you can accept it. It's gone. Good. That thing which was causing that rajas in me, that pride, that, that arrogance of being, as amazing as it was that a Volvo could do that for me, <laughs> there it was. And now it was gone, taken away. So you can have that slant on life. You can stop pretending that you know what good situations are and bad situations are. You can stop pretending you know who good people are and who bad people are. And you could start seeing the world through the understanding that everything is happening because of love. And you can go in search of that. You see a bad thing happen and you say, where's the love in that? And you sit there and you look and you know what you're going to have to do in order to see it? You're going to have to drop your ego. You're going to have to drop your idea of what's good for you and what's bad for you in order to find the love or what was good for somebody else or bad for somebody else in that event. You won't be able to see it. My favorite one, as I've always shared, is this 9-11. You know, if you were an American male on 9-11, that was a horrible day. That was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. This is horrible. The world changed. Everything changed on that day. If, in fact, you were a Muslim extremist, 9-11 was a great day. They finally punched the beast in the eye, you know, poked the dragon in the face, as it were. It's like, so it was a great celebration for someone of that, of that ilk. Why? Because their love was being manifested that day. Their love for their ideal, for what they thought was right in the world, for what they thought was good in the world. And they had a victory over what they thought was wrong with the world and what they thought was evil in the world. But you see that it was love alone that was manifesting there. My experience on the other side, I didn't see the love. I didn't understand the love. I didn't make room for the love. <laughs> I still have trouble making room for the love. But nonetheless, it was there. It's a story of love. And so you can see that in all of these events of the world, everything that happens, that it's a story of love. And that if it's happening to you, that it's happening for your benefit some way. Some way. What's the name of that book someone wrote? If life gives you lemons, make lemonade. It's having that kind of spirit, that kind of attitude about the world. Maharaj says, when effort is needed, effort will appear. When effortlessness becomes essential, it will assert itself. You need not push life about. Just flow with it and give yourself completely to the task of the present moment. For living is dying, and without death life cannot be. 
Get hold of the main thing that the world and the self are one and perfect. Only your attitude is faulty and needs readjustment. So if you're sitting in the moment and you're seeing things wrong with the world, you're not seeing its perfection, know that it's your attitude that's wrong. It's your perspective that's wrong. Somehow, someway, you're standing on a box of ego to observe the world, and you're not getting an, active, an accurate perspective. So this is the second possibility, that the whole world is good, that there's never a bad thing that happens, that all things are happening for good as God trains each one of us up and brings us to our enlightenment. And all of these activities have to be mixed together in their perfect arrangement to bring us to that space. So that's the second object, option for why bad things happen to good people. The third one is that there is no good or bad until it meets you. So this world is just going on. There's no good, there's no evil, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's just isness. It's just the way it's going. We'll go back to another conversation here with Maharaj. He starts off by saying, Desire is the memory of pleasure, and fear is the memory of pain. Both make the mind restless. Moments of pleasure are merely gaps in the stream of pain. How can the mind be happy? <laughs> so he's saying here, he's saying that desire is not an actual thing in itself. Desire is just the memory of pleasure. It's just that attachment that you've put into your mind, that thing that you grabbed out of the present that you weren't willing to let go of and you stored it. And your fear isn't a real thing in and of itself. It's just your memory of pain. You want to avoid that. You don't want that to happen again. That the things in and of themselves were meaningless until they aroused that memory within you, until they met you. And then you decided whether it was a good thing or whether it was a bad thing. The questioner says, well, that is true when we desire pleasure or expect pain. But there are moments of unexpected, unanticipated joy, pure joy, uncontaminated by desire, unsought, undeserved, God-given. Maharaj, still, joy is only joy against a background of pain. Questioner. Is pain a cosmic fact, or is it purely mental? <laughs> Maharaj, the universe is complete, and where there is completeness, where nothing lacks, what can give pain? Questioner, the universe may be complete as a whole, but it's incomplete in details. Maharaj, a part of the whole seen in relation to the whole is also complete. Only when seen in isolation it becomes deficient, and thus a seat of pain. What makes for isolation? Limitations of mind, of course. The mind cannot see the whole for the part. Maharaj, good enough. The mind, by its very nature, divides and opposes. Can there be some other mind? A mind which, reuni which reunites and harmonizes? which sees the whole in the part and the part as totally related to the whole? Questioner, where to look for it? So he's telling you here that, that, this, that, this, that, that it's the nature of your mind to limit, to box, to, to, to take things and put them into little squares where they belong and then to draw up relationships between all of them. That's the whole process of learning. You're told something new, you don't know it, until you've connected all the strings of everything else you know to it. You know, like, okay, that's a number, and that's an addition sign, and you got two of those and two of those, that's four. You know all of that because you've put it into your mind and you've begun attaching relationships to it with all of the other pieces of knowledge that sit there in this mind. And that is what's giving it meaning. That's, that's what's making it important. So on your day-to-day, -day, as things are happening, they're just happening. But your mind is collecting them, and then lining them and arranging them with all of the other things. Let's see, what does this mean? Let's see, he gave me this piece of paper. Let's see, yesterday he gave it to me, and I got in trouble because I didn't do anything with it, so I better do something with it today. 
what am I going to do with this bill? Oh, I got to fill this one out and send it over to Shirley in room three. <laughs> so like that, you take something meaningless, a piece of paper, and you create meaning by recognizing and by associating with it and bringing up all of the things from your memory and mind to it. Then it has meaning. But without you there, there is no meaning. So this brings that point that the reason that good things happen to bad people, good things happen to bad people, or bad things happen to good people, or things happen to anybody, is because of your, your mind. It's you who has given that person a value of bad, and it's your mind that's given that event the value of good. And once you come to understand that, you can realize that all of those decisions that you make are based on your own ego. What's good for you? What's bad for you? not what's good for you and what's good for somebody else. Swami Prabhudananda gave me a great example that I've also shared with you. I guess I should just stop saying that. Everything I ever say is a repeat. <laughs> we'll just settle that now. So Swami Prabhudananda used to tell me, he said, you know, that this idea that your karma, some people good karma and bad karma, he was talking, remember that story I told you about? He said that there were two people in a wheelchair. You know, two people lose their ability to walk. And we all think, oh, what a horrible thing that they can't walk because we look at it from our perspective walking is good it's a good thing to walk so he says but can you say that he says because this man who lost his ability to walk took the challenge and became a, 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 a an athlete in the special olympics and wins a gold medal and becomes an inspirational speaker for everybody who can't walk saying your limitation is not a limitation that it's an empowerment you know, that it's a challenge given to you to try and rise above. So he said to me, can you still look at that man and say that his ability to walk was a bad thing, that it was a bad karma or was a result of bad karma, when it was the very thing that gave his life meaning, when it was the very thing that made him an encourager and an uplifter, it was the very thing that made him strong, that gave him a center and a purpose to his life. Can you then say that it's still a bad thing? Of course not. And it's like that with everything in this world. You go around, oh, that's good, and that's bad, and that's good, and that's bad, and that's good, and that's bad. What an ignorant thing to do. You know nothing of good or bad. You know nothing even of the state of your own mind. And yet you run around categorizing everyone and everything, giving it values this way and that way. And then you get confused. Why is, why, why is, why is he getting two pieces of pizza? You know, how did that happen? How did he get away with that? How come I didn't get one? <laughs> How come it was gone by the time I got to the front of the line? So we look at things like that, you know, based on ego, based on our little box that we're standing on with our own small perspective, deciding what's good and what's bad. So the question isn't why good things happen to bad people or vice versa. The question is, why do you presume to know anything about it? <laughs> get on with your life. Get on with seeing God in the moment, understanding that everything is perfect as it is, that everything is beautiful, and let love actuate you. Stop, letting, stop having your ego determine your act of love, and let your nature desert, de, determine your act of love. Let it flow out of you, without you playing traffic guard at the top, saying, I'm not going to be nice to that person. They pushed me out of my seat yesterday, <laughs> you know? Oh my God, that's the person that cut me off on the freeway. I recognize him. <laughs> I'm not going to quickly push the closed door on the elevator button. <laughs> so he says, the mind by its very nature divides and opposes. Can there be some other mind, though? Can there be a mind which unites and harmonizes, which sees the whole in part, and sees the part as, the total, as totally related to the whole? Where to look for it? In going beyond the limiting, dividing, and opposing mind, in ending the mental process as we know it, when this comes to an end, that mind is born. Questioner, in that mind, the problem of joy and sorrow exists no longer? Maharaj, not as we know them, as desirable or repugnant. It becomes rather a question of love seeking expression and meeting with obstacles. The inclusive mind is love in action, battling against circumstance, initially frustrated, but ultimately victorious. So you see, when we're in the wrong mind, we're seeing things as being desirable or being repugnant. We want, we don't want. 
We've got that, that attraction and that aversion going on. He says, when you're in the right mind, when you've stopped thinking from the ego perspective, the mind thinks only in terms of, its, of expressing love and finding obstacles to that expression. Obstacles like what? Obstacles like your own body being hungry and wanting that piece of pizza, preventing you from sharing it with the person next to you. So your act of love is being inhibited by your sense of self, the lower sense of self. He's saying annihilate that mind. Give up any idea of yourself and let love flow. And your life will, will switch from this idea of things that you want and things that you don't want into simply expressing love and finding challenges to that expression to overcome. It changes the whole perspective. Going beyond the limiting, dividing and opposing mind, ending the mental process as we know it, when, it comes to, when this comes to an end, that mind is born. It becomes rather a question of love seeking expression, meeting with obstacles. The inclusive mind is love in action, battling against circumstance, initially frustrated, ultimately victorious. Questioner, between the spirit and the body, is it love that provides the bridge? Maharaj, what else? Mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. <laughs> That's why Vivekananda says, if you have a battle in your, between the heart and the head, go with the heart. <coughs> go with the heart. You know, that question, I have a lot of people, a lot of times, that, that, that eternal question comes up when you're trying, going to help somebody. Your initial impetus is to help, to give. Then the mind comes in and is like, they're a drunk, they're just going to spend that on liquor anyway. I'll just keep it myself, you know. Or I'll give it later, I'll give it to the March of Dimes tomorrow, <laughs> which never seems to happen. So it's that notion, you know, when the, art, when the heart moves you, go with the heart. Don't let the ego block come in and say, ah, 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 I'm going to keep that dollar for me. <laughs> well, I don't want to let it go. I already gave this month. Whatever it is. Mind creates the abyss. Your mind creates the problem. It's love in the heart that's going to take you across it. Because that's your nature. That's your nature. Not the smallness, the bigness. So that's our third option there. That there is no good or bad until it runs into you. The last one, and actually probably my favorite, life is a dream. It doesn't matter once you wake up, once you're out of it. The master says to Hazra, Yes, all one's confusion comes to an end if one only realizes that it is God who manifests himself as the atheist and the believer, the good and the bad, the real and the unreal, that it is he who is present in waking and in sleep, and that he is beyond all of these. There was a farmer to whom only, an only son was born when he was rather advanced in age. As the child grew up, his parents became very fond of him. One day the farmer was out working in the field when a neighbor told him that his son was dangerously ill, indeed at the point of death. Returning home, he found the boy dead. His wife wept bitterly, but his own eyes remained dry. Sadly, the wife said to her neighbors, such a son as this has passed away and he hasn't even shed a single tear. After a long while, the farmer said to his wife, do you know why I'm not crying? Last night I dreamt I had become a king and the father of seven princes. These princes were beautiful as well as virtuous. They grew in stature and acquired wisdom and knowledge and, and various perfection in, in the arts. Suddenly I woke up. Now I have been wondering whether I should weep for those seven children or for this one boy. To the Ghanis, the waking state is no more real than the dream state. God alone is the doer. Everything happens by his will. So this notion, this world is like a dream. It's unverifiable. You don't know what it is, what its nature is, what's going on with it. You don't know if, if you're asleep somewhere in a tank with five wires hooked up to you, giving you sound, giving you taste. <laughs> giving you vision, 
all of those things. They only have to spoof five senses to create this whole world for you. How easily done is that? We're getting very close in our own technology of watching that, of seeing that happen, to fool you into, into thinking something completely different. That this world, you, the, the sages say that there is no outside and inside, that all of this is mind. And how can that be? You know, you go and think about a dream, though, how interesting that idea is. It's a fascinating one. You can get a lot of spiritual mileage out of it, contemplating the notion. Because in a dream, everything in that dream, like, you know, if we were dreaming at this moment, say that, say that I'm asleep <laughs> and I'm dreaming this, it would all look exactly like this. I would be standing here talking. You'd be sitting there stuck, forced to listen for a whole hour. <laughs> and I would be here having the time of my life, just chatting away, <laughs> you know thinking about these things that are beautiful and lovely and wonderful. But what really is going on? There's only one person sleeping in a bed. There's only me. But even in that instance of me, I'm not that right now. I'm this. I've placed myself as a specific point in my own dream. And I've created a room full of, of alternative egos in here, in my own dream. And I've given each of you a sense of self so that you'll argue with me and that you'll, you know, maybe chase me out of the room before this is over or who knows in this dream. But the fact is it's one dream and that the dreamer is, is the dream and that the dreamer's not in the dream. I, as the sleeping person in the bed, am not here. When I'm in the dream, I'm this, this thing, you know, dressed in orange. It has to be a dream, <laughs> you know, but we've in that dream, you've still done all of these things. So take a look at life being that way, that it's all unreal. This one is kind of a cheater's perspective <laughs> because it's, it would be easy then to just laugh, let it all be, let the kids starve. It's only a dream, <laughs> you know, let, let it all happen. It's just a dream. But of course, that doesn't happen. Mother says it can't happen anyway. Even if you wanted to sit there and just let the kids starve, she says your, your, your karma itself will push you out of that chair. It was a very interesting thing she said to a young brahmachari one time. He said he was going to sit there. He's like, well, I'm just going to sit here until I realize God. And she, she, she smiled. She liked the idea. But she told him, she said, <laughs> you're not going to be able to sit there. Unless, unless it's your time for God-realization because your karma itself is going to throw you out of that chair to do whatever you need to be, needs to be done. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? There were a couple times in my early days where I wanted to have that kind of, that kind of vigor, you know, that kind of spiritual tenacity to say I was going to sit in the shrine. I'm not going to get up until I realize God because I had nothing else to do. You know, I, I, was, a, I was a brahmachari there in San Francisco Swami's not going to come pull me out of the shrine to make lunch. You know, Greg, who is the other brahmachari there, he always told me, he says, you know, if you ever want to spend more time in the shrine, I'll do your chores for you. Don't you ever think, think that there's something you have to do that, that will pull you out of the shrine. He told me that, like the first few days I was in the monastery. I thought that was so cool. So I had that opportunity. I'm not sitting in that shrine, nor have I realized God. So something happened. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but apparently my karma flicked me out of that shrine at some point to do something else. That's the nature of this dream. It's going on, carrying on. We're doing as we're doing. When we wake up, it'll be finished. You know, you don't sit there. This guy's kind of a unique, unique man in the sense that he's sitting there. Something happens in, quote, the real world. And then he can't distinguish it from the dream world. We would normally think of something's wrong with that guy. But the fact is he's seeing things properly. He's understanding that, that these are equivalent things. You know, that one is a statement about the other. But the fact is, when you wake up in the morning, you don't sit there and contemplate, now why was that guy chasing me? What did I do to him? Do I need to apologize for something? <laughs> you know, it's like, why, why, you know, why was I in the lake anyway? God, that was weird. You don't, you don't have to solve these problems. You don't wonder about the physics of the dream. You know, my God, I flew, and it was like swimming. Well, I wonder what the equations of physics are that would allow that to happen. You know, how does that come about? Because we understand what? We understand it's a dream. We've got three words that make it all better. Oh, just a dream. 
it was four words. Just a dream. There's three words. Just a dream makes everything better. You realize where it was. You don't care anymore about anything that happened there. So it's a bold statement, but the sages say that it's the case with this life as well. When you come to your realization, when you realize that all of this was yourself, that you were the dreamer in all of your aspects, telling a story of love from every possible vantage point, from every possible perspective, that in its entirety it was always perfect. No matter when you sliced it, love was complete and whole and fully expressed. <laughs> and when you woke up, you just let it be like that. So this world is also like that. It's a bold idea. It's a scary idea. That's why Takor ends it by saying God alone is the doer. You only get nervous because you think, oh, if I saw this world as a dream, I wouldn't care about anything. I wouldn't do anything. Because you think you're the doer still. Even though a very small percentage of your plans have actually happened, you're still the one doing. You know? That's the story. That's the mind. It's not like that. So how do we break out? Seven minutes. Seven minutes here. How can I make my mind steady? How can I break this mind that's continually creating all these questions and problems, these injustices and justices? How can I make my mind steady? Maharaj, how can an unsteady mind make itself steady? Of course it cannot. It is the nature of the mind to roam about. All you can do is to shift the focus of consciousness beyond the mind. How's that done? Refuse all thoughts except one, the thought I am. The mind will rebel in the beginning, but with patience and perseverance it will yield and keep quiet. Once you are quiet, things will begin to happen spontaneously and quite naturally without any interference on your part. Can I avoid this protracted battle with my mind? Maharaj, yes, you can. Just live your life as it comes, but alertly, watchfully, allowing everything to happen as it happens, doing the natural things the natural way, suffering, rejoicing, all as life brings. This also is a way. So it's just removing that ego, removing that lower sense of self. Let life bring what it brings. You know that it's there for your good. You know that it's there to bring you to your enlightenment, that it's there to make you stronger, to bring you home. Let it bring it. Turn off all the other things that the mind is doing and live in the moment. Watch things unfold naturally. Because what will manifest? You're not nothing. You're not nothing so that when you give up the idea of being the doer, you're going to do nothing. That's not what you are. You're Satchit Ananda. You're the joy of life, your life itself, your love itself. That is what will start manifesting. That is what will start reacting to the world. That is what will start doing. That nature of yours will create beautiful things. So you watch the mind, you watch it avert, not want things, and you begin to understand, yeah, it doesn't want that because of that memory. Oh, and it wants that because of that memory. And you begin to understand that the mind is so paper-thin that it's so unimportant, that it just goes here and there, just, that it's just a rolling organ of thought, just taking one idea and creating a new idea out of that one and another idea out of that one and another idea out of that one, and that it's nothing but exhaustion, and that you made a really big mistake to get your hand caught in there and to climb into that apparatus and then to become to think that you were a part of it, that it was you. He says, be free of your mind. Look through your mind. Don't live under your mind. Look through your mind at God and understand that it's God alone that you're looking at. And over time, as purity begins to happen, as the mistakes and the wrong perspectives begin to weaken and begin to fall away, you'll begin to recognize the self beyond the mind. You'll be able to see God during the day. You'll recognize him in an act of love. And you'll take encouragement from that. You'll feel a response to your prayer and your meditation. You'll touch that peace and you'll recognize it because the mind is quiet. Because it's no longer deluding you with the narration of story that it's making up as it goes. That it's creating out of nothing.
refuse all thoughts. Well then, can I as well marry and have children, run a business, be happy? Maharaj, sure. You may or may not be happy. Take it in your stride. Questioner, yeah, but I want happiness. Maharaj, true happiness cannot be found in things that change and pass away. Got it? (laughs) If you don't take anything home today, take that. Know that. Your happiness cannot be provided by things that change and things that pass away. Pleasure and pain alternate inexorably. Happiness comes from the self and can be found in the self only. Find your real self, your Swarupa, and all else will come with it. If my real self is peace and love, why is it so restless? Maharaj, it is not your real being that is restless, but it's reflection in the mind that appears restless because the mind is restless. It is just like the reflection of the moon in water stirred by the wind. The wind of desire stirs the mind and the me, which is but a reflection of the self in the mind, making it appear changeful. But these ideas of movement, these ideas of restlessness, these ideas of pleasure and pain, they are all in the mind only. The the self stands beyond the mind, aware but unconcerned. Questioner, how to reach it? Maharaj, you are that self. Here and now, leave the mind alone. Stand aware and unconcerned, and you will realize that to stand alert but detached Watching events come and go is an aspect of your very nature. You're the the dreamer watching the story of love happen. You are love itself. I like to think this world, why this world? It's mind that demands a why. It's a polluted mind that demands a why because it thinks everything has a cause and an effect, has a purpose. But we simply are watching the manifesting of a perfect business, a perfect being unfolding in every moment. That's all we're watching. Just like, you know, you're, I, uh, the best one I've come up with, I don't like it yet, but the idea that your body heat, you know, your body heat's 98.6 or some, something pretty close to that. You're like, why? How? What? Who cares? <laughs> I'm alive, so my body's 98.6 degrees. It's just what happens when I am. That's this world. It happens when God is. This is what he looks like. There's not a why to it. This is God. This is isness. This is being. This is presence. This is awareness. There's no explanation to it. There's no point to it. There's nothing that has to be accomplished. It's all you. You alone exist in your pure state, unadulterated. There is no good. There is no bad. There are only stories of love flowing through a thousand different storylines. But every slice in every moment is perfect. Every slice in every moment is pure. Every slice in every moment is good. It exists perhaps to bring you home. Who knows? (laughs) Perhaps not even for that. Perhaps that just happens because God is also. So rest in that. Take any one of these four explanations for the events of life as you like. Accept them or reject them. But watch the mind. Learn how it's lied to you. Learn how it fools you. Learn the parts of it that are sticky, that drag you in. Begin to avoid them. Look at the things in the day that you're attached to that you can give wide birth to so that you don't get stuck. So that you can experience this infinite peace that Maharaj here is saying exists within you and is available to you in in its fullness at every moment. That you deserve peace only when you stop obstructing it with attachment and desire. Decide this moment that you're fine and you're fine. Decide this moment that you're content and you're content. This moment, choose happiness. You don't have to go query the mind to get permission. Be happy. See God. Don't seek him anymore. That's the message 
of the Upanishads and our beloved Thakur and Jesus and Buddha. Find your refuge in God and God alone. No one can keep us from carrying God wherever we go. No one can rob his name from our hearts as we try to scale our fears and despair and at last accept happiness. We do not have to leave him in the mosque or the church alone at night. We do not have to be jealous of tales of saints and glorious intoxicated souls who can make outrageous love with the friend. We do not have to be envious of our spirit's ability, which can sometimes touch God in a dream. Our calloused palms, our open eyes, our words and mouth, our sweating pits, they can all bear, be near to him. No one anywhere can keep us from carrying the beloved wherever we go. No one can rob his precious name from the rhythm of your heart, from the rhythm of your steps, from the rhythm of your breath.